0: Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor. Uh, y'all remember me. I know it's been a minute. Uh, it's, been, uh, it's been about three weeks, and uh, we'll talk more about that in a minute. We are continuing our sermon series in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. So let's go ahead and grab our Bibles, and let's flip over to 1 Corinthians 15. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. And in our Bibles, we're going over to page 961, page 961 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, we've been studying uh, 1 Corinthians 15 in preparation for Easter. 1 Corinthians 15 is uh, is the longest, most extensive teaching in the New Testament on the resurrection and the implications of the resurrection. Uh, Paul started a church in Corinth, and, and after many years, um, started hearing that there were people in the church who were... Um, in their Bible studies, kind of basically being like, you know what, I don't know about that whole physical resurrection thing. Uh, Not sure I'm into that. Not sure I believe that. I don't know that it's really all that important. And so Paul addresses them and says, uh, it is absolutely non-negotiable for the faith. It is, uh, as we saw two weeks ago when Aaron started the series, he, he, he made it very clear, it is a historical reality. Jesus rose from the dead. I saw him uh, Paul says. But, but beyond that, there were 500, right? They're eyewitnesses. They're still alive. Go talk to them um, because uh, it is a historical reality. It is also a theological necessity. We looked at that last week. Aaron uh, opened that up. And, and uh, even though they were tempted, they, they wanted the benefits of the gospel without the historical foundation of the gospel. They wanted, they wanted the community and the faith and the forgiveness and the new beginning and, 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 and like-mindedness and, and all of those things, but without necessarily the foundation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And, 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 and Paul was like, look, man, if there's no resurrection from the dead, Christ wasn't raised from the dead. And if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, we're a bunch of fools. We are hopeless and lost. Uh, it is a theological necessity. And Paul even took it a step further. He's like, man, because it's really bad news. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, not only uh, am, I, am I lying about that, I'm misrepresenting God, and one day I'm going to have to stand before Him, not only to give account for all the other things I've done wrong, but I'm going to have to give an account for this lie, right? But, he says, Christ, in fact, did rise from the dead, right? It is incredibly good news that changes everything. So we're going to continue digging into this um, as we continue through 1 Corinthians 15. I want to let you know about some things coming up on Easter weekend. This, is, this series is a run-up to Easter weekend uh, to help us prepare for a celebration of Resurrection Sunday. Um, on the Friday before the Sunday, uh, we do have a Good Friday service, right? So that's going to be on Friday, April 19th at 7 o'clock here. I would highly encourage you to come out and join us. Um, our Good Friday service, we call it a service of darkness. It is it is um, our commemoration of the crucifixion of Christ, right? Because you don't get a resurrection without the crucifixion. And so what we do is we come togath- together to, uh, to lament and mourn, um, but also to take joy because um, there is reason for lament, right? Uh, my sin was so bad it required Christ to die, but I am so loved He gladly did it. That I might be redeemed, forgiven, made new, right? And so we're going to come together on that Good Friday uh, to sit in the heaviness, but also to sit in the joy of of, of our great need and His great provision uh, in the crucifixion of Christ. Then comes Silent Saturday. We kind of wrestled with what to do with Silent Saturday, uh, and and what we've decided to do, man, because we were just trying to figure out: Do you celebrate? Easter, you know, on Saturday? The resurrection of Christ, which occurred uh, early Sunday morning, do you you celebrate that on Saturday? And and we decided, no, we're we're actually going to cancel our Saturday services. Um, And so we are not going to have a Saturday service. So if you've been thinking about trying out our Saturday night service, I highly encourage you to do so. Just not that weekend, okay? Because if you show up, we're not going to be here. Um, We're instead going to have three Sunday morning services uh, on Easter Sunday. Uh, the first one will be a, a sunrise service at 7 o'clock. I don't know what time the sun rises, but I've declared it will be 7. Um, and so we are going to have a sunrise 7 o'clock service. Uh, we won't have childcare at that service, and so if you're an early riser with your kids, um, you are more than welcome to come, but, but your kids will be sitting with you, okay? Uh, otherwise, we have our normal 9 and 1045 services as well. Okay, so that's kind of coming up, uh, and we'll keep announcing it because we we just want to make sure the information continues to get spread. We're looking at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 28 this morning, so follow along as I read out loud, starting in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Verse 20. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has... Been raised from the dead. The first fruits. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Um, so as Paul is arguing with the Corinthians, it is the resurrection is a historical reality. It is a theological necessity, and he's exploring all the bad implications of what it means. If there is no resurrection from the dead and if Christ didn't rise from the dead, we are still dead in our sins and our trespasses. We will still have to come before God and give an account um, as, as those who have committed cosmic treason before a God of justice. Um, we are of all people to be most pitied, right? It is, it is a bad, bad scene, but he says, this is a transitional verse and an important one, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. It's a beautiful transition. As I've been sitting in it and studying it this week um, and, and just kind of preparing my heart to preach it, um, I've also been still processing uh, my experience in Honduras. Um, those of you who've been around for a while know that the reason I was out, the reason I was, I was out of the pulpit for three weeks was because I was traveling. We went down to Tegucigalpa, Honduras um, to, to, to do a medical, short-term medical mission trip. Uh, we had 18 of us that went down and um, um, Paul Dar, who was the leader of our trip, uh, he told me before we went on the trip. In fact, he told the whole group, "He's like, you will you, this trip will change you." And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, of course it'll change me." You know, I've been I've been on I've been on tons of short term mission trips. I've I've been around the world um, doing short term mission, but also coming alongside long term missionaries to to equip and and coming alongside them. And um, I've had tons of experiences, and so I'm sure this will be I'm sure this will be great. I'm sure, it'll be great. Um, here's what I will tell you. It was absolutely impactful. Um, it, it, if you ask me how the trip was, I will warn you, I will talk longer than you want to talk um, because it is just still like all right here. It, it, it was powerful. It impacted me. I was changed and everybody on the trip was changed. It was phenomenal to see people strategically, intentionally take steps of faith throughout the week. Um, as there were things that they were just going to, they knew it was going to be hard. They knew there were going to be things that made them uncomfortable. And, and I just saw team member after team member taking that step of faith. And then, you know, coming back into the group, sometimes with, with stories of incredible celebration and sometimes with stories of incredible frustration. But, but working through that together, I mean, it was, it, was an, it was phenomenal, y'all. So if you ask me, I'll talk your ear off. I'm just warning you in advance and it's not my fault. Um, now, having said that, this thing, I just it's, it's rattling around inside my head, and, uh, and I had a dream Friday night. So I'm, I was sitting in the text, and the way I study for sermons is I do the academic study, I do the linguistic study, I do the historical study, and then I just sit in it. I don't know how to describe it any other way than that. I mean, I meditate in it, and I sit in it, like I immerse myself in it, and, and often it's not uncommon for me to even have dreams about it because I'm just in it wrestling with it. I'm a very visual person, um, and I, I, I think in metaphors, and, and I just... And so Friday night I had a dream, it was kind of a melding of the Honduras stuff and the passage, and so, um, so that's what you're going to get this morning, um, and I'll, I'll explain more as we move forward. Let me give you a quick summary of what happened in Honduras so that you have a context for what I'm talking about. Um, we know, you know, as so we as a church have sponsored right around 100 kids through Compassion International in Tegucigalpa, Honduras. Um, we did a couple of Compassion Sundays and um, we, we targeted a specific neighborhood in Tegucigalpa with the idea that if we ever got to go visit, we could take the whole group and, and go visit our kids. And we did that. Uh, it was phenomenal. But as we were planning this, um, one of our members, Paul Darr, um, came to us and said, hey, have you ever thought about working with this other group called WGO, World Gospel Outreach? He's like, "I've done, I've done a whole bunch of trips with wgo and i think it'd be awesome to do a compassion and wgo trip let's let's join these things and um and i was like you know that that actually sounds great i wasn't you know the the compassion trip there's a compassion trip you just go down you visit the kids and then you leave and the idea of being able to go down and actually do something worthwhile and and be a blessing to the community and visit the kids i was like man i'm totally in i had no idea how incredibly cool it would be um we, uh, with, with WGO, WGO has two prongs. The first is they have what they call care teams um, that they bring in to address physical and spiritual suffering in the community. So the care teams come in and they host a brigade. A brigade is a two day medical mission. And so we had a team of 18. We went down, um, we flew into Tegucigalpa on a Saturday, um, got unpacked, got our rooms. Sunday, we went to a Honduran church, which was awesome. We went out to a Honduran restaurant for lunch, which was even more awesome. Not really. I love worshiping. with, with, But food's awesome. I just tell you, man, the the food is good. Um, And and then we spent Sunday night basically separating pills and packing things and get everything ready. And then it started, man. Monday morning, 545, devotions, and then out the door. uh, We're in a local church. And we're doing medical mission work, so we have different stations we have we have a medical station, a dental station where there's actually dentist chairs set up with with local dentists there's an optometrist who has a, an eye tester thing and, and, and he's prescribing and helping people get glasses. Um, we have We have a pharmaceutical station where when the docs give uh, scripts, uh, they can go get medicine that will actually help them with their with you know, their, their issues. Uh, we have a kid's station where we do kids ministry. We're singing with the kids, playing with the kids, uh, but we're also um, delicing and washing kids' hairs and styling hair. Uh, and then we have a, a spiritual conversation station, a prayer station, where we meet with people and pray with them and hear their story and, and get to share the good news of Jesus with them. And we did this for two days on Monday and Tuesday in one local church. Wednesday, we went and visited our Compassion Kids, which was awesome. Thursday, Friday, we were in a different local church um, uh, doing the same exact thing we did the first two days. So the local churches, what I love about that is they're obviously rooted in their communities. They're the ones that promote it in their neighborhoods. They're, they're building relationships with, with the people in their communities, and we're coming alongside them and helping them do that. Um, we have people that live in those communities that are following up with every single person that comes uh, to those um, events. Um, and, um, and it was overwhelming. It was overwhelming. Um, our medical team uh, this is Paul Dar over here. We, we started calling him Papa Paul because um, he, was, he was the one herding the cats, which in Honduras is a huge challenge. Um, but, man, what a great leader he was on this trip. He is a doctor, and so he was on the medical team. Jason and Andrea Wong, long-term uh, trailhead faithful leaders, uh, are both nurses, and so they were down there um, completely out of their comfort zone, which was awesome. Um, and, uh, and next to them is Jared. Um, and Jared is from Kansas, and he's a family practitioner. Um, and uh, and and then there was one more, Sarah. Sarah, who is a Honduran doctor, was also on the trip. All of us rotated through all of the stations and did all the work, except these guys. These guys sat in one place all day long, and they saw anywhere from eighty to one hundred and twenty patients. I think I think Andrea is the only one that got to one hundred and twenty. She was a machine. Um, but. Um, uh, so what they did, obviously, was tremendously impactful. Uh, Fabio right here in the red hat. Um, I'll tell you more about him in a minute. Just take a look at his face for a moment. See that smile? Um, because he was a joy. That, that kid was a spark plug. Um, and I want to tell you more about him in a moment. So let me give you a scope of what we did over the course of the week. We, we saw in the two brigades, which is four days of work, we saw about 2,200 people. Um, 1,279 received medical care, 210 received dental care, 301 went through the optical care, um, 420 kids went through the kids' ministry and, and had their heads de-liced if necessary, the hair washed and styled, which the guys, the kids loved. Um, Paul told me, this surprised me, we distributed right around $50,000 worth of pharmaceuticals um, retail value. Um we spoke with prayed with counseled um all the people that came through and out of that um we saw 75 people make first time professions of faith and we saw 60 people who um said they weren't believers say no thank you i'm going to stay an unbeliever um and uh it was overwhelming it was overwhelming um let me tell you something wgo is the real deal i am sold on WGO. Um, They work in a way that is rooted in local community. Um, Every Westerner on staff raises their own salary. That's including the people in the organization. So even the president of WGO raises his own salary. Every Honduran is paid. Um, They're creating an industry. All the translators are paid. All the event coordinators are paid. All the professionals are paid. Now, the local churches, uh, the pastor and the volunteers, they're not paid because um, we're coming alongside them in their effort to reach out to serve and know and love their community. Um, But every professional in the WGO staff, every translator, they're all paid. There are Honduran leaders at every level of the organization. The point leader for Honduras is Honduran. Now, he has a coworker. Uh, they, They share the burden, who is Western, and his job is primarily to raise money um in the united states and and in other areas um uh the honduran point leader his job is to actually run the ministry um i'm telling you it's 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 incredibly well done um that's the first prong are these care teams the second prong is rancho ebenezer rancho ebenezer is a ranch they have on the hills up on, on on the outskirts Tegucigalpa is this city kind of in a bowl surrounded by mountains. And up on the mountainside, in one area, they have a, an 85-acre ranch where they have about 20,000 um, coffee plants. Um, they sell coffee. Hunter and coffee is pretty awesome. Uh, but that's one of the ways they raise money for what they do. And on this ranch, they have housing um, for up to 80 kids. They currently have 39. Um, Compassion International. One of the reasons I love Compassion International is it allows me to come alongside a family in poverty, right? There are parents that love their kids and want to provide for their kids, but they can't because there's stupid poverty, right? So it allows me to come alongside them and aid the parent to care for their kid in the way they would want to care for their kids. So when I met with my kid, Steve, and I also met with his mom, Gladys, it was awesome, right? It was so cool and enriching to me to see this family that, that I was just, in a, in, a, in a way, aiding her to love her kid and care for her kid to get him education, medical care, and things like that. Um, Rancho Ebenezer um, focuses on kids that have no parents, Um, a group that Compassion doesn't work with because there are no structures to work with those kids. They're street kids, they're orphans, they're abandoned. And in Tegucigalpa, there are no structures in place, governmental structures in place to protect those kids. They are the most abused, um, they are the most harmed, they're the most vulnerable, and they end up becoming um, absolutely... um, they become, they become abusers because they have to learn how to survive in that culture. Uh, Fabio, the uh, translator that I showed you, was the first graduate from Rancho Ebenezer. They took him in at nine months old. They raised him through the entire program. He, he, he came out of it being bilingual, speaking both English and Spanish. Um, he had Western teachers, but his house parents were Honduran. Um, they raised them in a family unit. Um, so that the other kids are their brothers and their sisters. Uh, they have capacity for up to 80 kids. They currently only have 39 because that's what they have funding for. I think there's a tremendous opportunity for future partnership with them, and I'm looking forward to doing that. Um, but it's, it's pretty phenomenal. So let me tell you one story specifically. Um, on Monday, the first day I was there, uh, I was in the evangelizing area, which... Um, it was really, really, I, I, it was uncomfortable for me. It was hard. But um, I, was, I was there, and, and it, you know, I just saw it as my goal to pray with every person who came through, uh, to listen, to encourage, and to ask the Spirit what was happening. Um, and I had this young woman, Brisney, uh, who came and, and sat down with me. And Brisney had a couple kids with her. And Brisney um, had come for medical care, and she had that look um, of, where's the exit? You know what I'm saying? Like, I see that look a lot at church, right? It's kind of like the people that are like, I'm here because I was invited here. I'm here because I have to be here. Or I'm here because I have a deep need, and I think it might be met here. But I'm not really comfortable here, and I'm always going to keep an eye on the exit. You know what I'm saying? Like, like I'm here, I'm and, I'm, I'm, I'm and she had that look, and, uh, and I've learned it, right? And so I'm like, I'm like, you know what, let's just call this out. I'm like, you know what, Bristney, it, it, it's apparent to me that you're uncomfortable, um, and so I want to honor that. I want to honor that. But can I just tell you one thing before you go? Can I just tell you how much God loves you? You okay with that? Can I just tell you how much God loves you? Let me share a verse with you. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world. But God didn't just love the world. God, for God so loved Brissney, that he sent his one and only son that, that brisney might not perish but might have everlasting life because he didn't come to condemn brisney he came that brisney might have life can i just share with you how much god loves you and i'm like that's the period right we get to shake hands now and and uh and but she just kept sitting and so i'm like all right let me tell you a little bit more about this god who loves you right um, jesus died and he rose again and it, you know I, and i started unpacking kind of the the beautiful message of the gospel and 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 Bristini continues to sit there and interact and i've got lesbia who's my um translator sitting next to me and so i'm speaking and lesbia translates and she speaks back and lesbia tells me what's going on and and after a while i'm like i'm like lesbia I, there's something happening here so can i just let's just ask are you okay what's is there, what's happening, are, are you, are you ask her if she's okay, and so, so Lesbia leans in, and, and asks, and, and, uh, Bristney just starts weeping, and she starts speaking, and then Lesbia's speaking, and, and pretty soon Lesbia's got her arm on Brisney's arm. And, there are, and there's a, like a thousand words. I'm like, I'm okay, I see I'm, it's not me here anymore, right? Yeah. Nothing, nothing I'm saying is being translated nor needs to be. Uh, my role now is just to pray. And so I'm sitting here just praying as Lesbia is, is um, having this deep, intense conversation with Brisney. And then finally Lesbia sits back and, um, and looks at me. And says uh, she's 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 in crisis, she's in she's in a bad spot. Uh, She's pregnant, and she's been abandoned by her family, and and I didn't understand at all. But she's living with a guy, and she's very vulnerable and exposed, and um, it's not a good situation. And situations of extreme poverty usually aren't good situations. People don't have um, the recourse and protection that people with wealth have. They don't they don't have government services. They don't have you know i mean it, and so but but then lesbia says and this is what so like she's she's explaining all this and i'm overwhelmed with just the weight of all this and then she looks at me and she says but lesbia lesbia looks at me and says but Bristney would would like to receive the gift of grace and uh i was like wow okay um so i explained the gospel again right and, and i'm like you sure like this is you you know and 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 Um, and so I pray with her. Uh, She's a mess, and um, she ends up going and sitting with another leader, uh, one of the WGO leaders and then one of the church leaders. She spends about another 45 minutes talking with and praying with these people. Um, So she leaves, Um, and from a theological perspective, the dead has just been brought to life. She's covered in the very righteousness of Christ. Jesus died for her and rose again and she is covered in his dignity and surrounded by his love. And she is now entering into a spiritual community that loves her and is going to care for her. She's not stepping back out into the world isolated and alone. She is now in a new family. And this new family is going to help her sort out the mess that she's in. Um, so this is where the dream comes in. Um, the dream I had Friday night, and, and again, I think, so I think visually, and I. metaphors are powerful to me, so if this doesn't translate well, then I'm just weird, and I'm okay with that. But my dream, Bristney drove up a hill out of the valley, so the Tegucigalpa's in this bowl, and everybody wants to get out of the bowl. Man, the houses, I mean, it's almost like the houses are climbing up the hillside. The higher you get up the hillside, the more more freedom there is, the more air there is, the more affluence there is. The rich people all live up there. And I see her driving up the hillside. And you come to this kind of scenic overlook over the valley. And it's a, it's a roundabout. You guys know what a roundabout is, right? Um, in Honduras, there are all these roundabouts. But there's no exit, right? So you just hit it, you roundabout, and you go back down. And that, that was like, that's how I first encountered her, man. She got up there and she was coming there for a specific purpose, for medical care or, or for and whatever reason. I don't know what the background was, but, but she wasn't really comfortable coming there. She just knew she needed to get something there and she was planning on heading back down the hill. And I intercepted her. We had this opportunity while she's there um, to speak with her. And, and in my dream, it was like there was an exit up the hill out of the roundabout that she hadn't seen. And suddenly now she sees it. And it's like, I'm surprised. Like, oh, that's cool, right? You get to keep going up. Jesus said, remove the barrier. All right, let me go back to the text. Put the sun on the screen behind me. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This section is, is really, really loaded theologically. Um, and that's one of the challenges of preaching this, this paragraph. There's a lot going on here. Um, and so I'm going to give you a 30,000 foot view of, of what's happening. And then I'm going to come back and focus on two specific words. On a 30,000 foot view, you have this idea. Um, uh, that that there are two federal heads of the human race. The first was Adam. So Adam, when, when he chose to rebel against God, it was not purely a personal act. God had created mankind to be the steward of all creation. And as the steward, Adam had a responsibility to act in a way that would protect the flourishing of life. But instead, he rebelled against God. And rebelling against God, he introduced death into the created order. But he didn't just act for himself, he acted for all of us. So we are born with this inheritance from Adam, our first father. Right? He acted and it affected everyone who would come after him. Um, As those who were were under the federal headship of Adam, we were helpless to break out because what that means theologically is that we're born sinners, but we're also acting sinners, right? So we're sinners by birth, we're sinners by choice. We simply reinforce and recreate the rebellion of Adam over and over and over again in our lives. We look at God and we say to God, I'm not going to trust you, I'm going to compete with you. I'm not going to worship you, I'm going to worship myself. I'm not going to revolve around you. I'm going to try to make you revolve around me. I will, I will make myself significant. I will make myself secure. I will find my own pleasure. I will find my own purpose. We recreate the sin of Adam over and over and over again in our lives. And it is a cycle that we are unable to break out of because it is a cycle of death. We needed a second federal head. We needed someone else to step in. And so in this passage, there's a, a, an emphasis on the humanity of Christ. So take a look at verse 21. For as by a man, the word man there is is anthropos, the Greek word anthropos, which means human. For as by a human came death, by a man, a human, anthropos, by a human has come also the resurrection of the dead. So I want you to notice the the emphasis here is not on Christ's deity, it is on Christ's humanity. It is the fact that, that He was perfectly human. He was only the second human to ever walk the face of the earth with the opportunity of being what humanity was created to be. Fully submissive to the Father, walking. right. Jesus himself said, I do nothing but what the Father tells me to do. He walked in full submission to the Father. He walked empowered by the Spirit. He he walked for the glory of God, for the mission of God. He was human as humanity was created to be, right? So by a man came death, so has by a man also come the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, because Adam, our federal head, rebelled against God, we all receive that rebellion. So also in Christ, all shall be made alive. And, And there's a rhetorical flourish here. What he's basically saying is in Adam, everyone who is to die, dies. And in Christ, everyone who is to live, lives. Because we know that ultimately the grace of God must be received by faith which makes a lot of sense because the original sin was a rejection of dependency on God. It was a competition with God. I will be like God. I will not depend on God. I won't live for God's glory. I'll live for my glory. The invitation of the gospel is to to invert that process, to once again trust instead of compete, to rest instead of perform. Christ performed for me. I will rest in His performance. Christ won for me what I couldn't win for myself. I will receive that gift of grace by simply trusting in Christ. I will reject my own self-salvation projects. The things that I'm doing to try to make myself important or secure or, or, or loved. All of these ways I'm trying to perform and fight and do. I reject those and instead trust in Christ. Receive the gift of grace. by by trusting in Him. All who are to be made alive are made alive. Verse 23, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then it is coming those who belong to Him. And then you get into this extended passage about um, how the kingdom of God comes, and Jesus is the king over the kingdom of God because God places all things underneath His feet, and then Jesus Himself takes everything that's been given to Him and places it under the Father because even the Son needs to be subjected to the Father. Right? And, and, and then it gets into this, there's deep theological waters here, right? How, how in the Trinity, where you have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three who's and one what? Three persons, one God. They're all equal in glory, equal in power, equal in, in essence and dignity. How can you have one person of the Godhead eternally subjected to another person of the Godhead when they are absolutely equal in dignity and in power? And it helps us to remember that the emphasis of the passage is actually on the humanity of Christ. That Christ is sitting on the throne, not as the Son of God, but as the Son of Man. He is sitting on the throne, not because He's deity, but because He is perfect humanity. God created everything to be ruled by a human who was created in His own image. Jesus is that human. He is humanity as humanity was created to be. And in that role, He takes everything that's been entrusted to Him and He entrusts it and subjects it to his Father, and he himself, in his perfect humanity, continues in subjection and submission to God, that God might be in all and over all. All right, there's your overview. It's really, really deep. I'm not going to talk any more about that, and I'll tell you why, because all those ideas come out later in the chapter, which I'm really thrilled about. They come out in more detail um, later on, so I'm going to get to re-preach all of that stuff when we get there. What I want to do this morning is focus on um, two key words, and the first is the word firstfruits. First fruits, which we see in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. We see it again in verse 22. For in Adam all die, but in, um, oh, I'm sorry, verse 23, but in Christ all shall be made alive, verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits. All right, what in the world is a firstfruit? Why is Jesus called one? Well, I think the term is, is itself fairly self-explanatory. Most of us could probably get there without knowing a whole lot of background, right? It has something to do with the first fruits. In the Old Testament, there are, in fact, laws um, about first fruits offerings. In a primarily agri- uh, agricultural society where most people made their living by raising crops, the first fruits offering was significant. You would spend your entire year tilling the soil, planting the seed, caring for the crops. And then then once a year, you finally get to this climactic moment called the harvest, where you get to reap all the benefit of all of your labor, all the investment of your money, your sweat, your tears, everything. You finally get to reap it. It ends up happening. The first fruits offering says you take the first and the best of the harvest and you bring it to God. You bring it to the temple and you lay it before him. It is an act of faith and humility by which you are saying, even though I'm the one doing all the work, all the produce comes from God. Even though I'm laboring diligently, I know it is God that is giving me the fruitfulness for my labor. It is an act of humility that says, this is not, this is not mine, it's God's. And so to glorify God, I bring Him this first fruits offering. But it also sanctifies the rest of the crop. Because what you're saying by faith is, even though I'm bringing you the first and the, and the best, by faith, I trust that God is going to make the rest of the harvest just as good. That it will be of the same quantity and the same quality. That, that in a sense, I'm not making a sacrifice by bringing a first fruits offering. I'm simply taking a step of faith, knowing that God is going to honor that step of faith and make it fruitful. So when Jesus is called the first fruits, what he's saying is that Jesus is the first of a harvest in both quantity and quality. That there will be more like him, a rich harvest of both numerical richness, but also of the same quality. This is important. Jesus was not the first one raised from the dead. Right? You read through the Old Testament, and there are stories, miraculous stories of people being raised from the dead. In Jesus' own ministry, there, there were people raised from the dead. Right? We, we know this. Right, These stories, we're familiar with these stories, but not one of those people who were raised from the dead stayed alive. Right? They were raised from the dead, but it was like a one-off miracle. <laughs> like, all right, there you go. There's your benefit. Enjoy it till you die again right? It's not like they were raised with some sort of superpower where they could walk around and going, okay, you don't die and you don't die. And No, they just kept living until they died again, right? The story of Lazarus, when, when Jesus raised his good friend Lazarus, Jesus shows up three days after he's been dead, and Jesus is like, roll away the stone. And the family's like, mm, he stinks by now, right? He's been dead for three days. Jesus is like, trust me, roll it away, right? And then he says, Lazarus, come forth. Now, he wasn't speaking to the body, right? He wasn't speaking into the dark room in which that body lay. He was speaking into the black hole in which Lazarus' spirit had gone. The black hole called death, the black hole that we know is at the end of every one of our stories. The black hole that has swallowed every human that has ever lived and will swallow them. We know that everyone in the past has gone to that place and we will too. It is the universal reality of the human condition. He is speaking, he is speaking, he's throwing like this life preserver, not into the tomb, but into that black hole of death. And it takes hold of Lazarus, pulls his spirit, reunites it with his body. And Lazarus comes hopping out of the tomb, wrapped up in the linen cloths, and he's like, you better untie him or he's going to die again quick. Like literally, go read it. It's, it's kind of a funny story, right? He just hops out and like, got to unwrap this dude. But you know what? Lazarus still had to die. We don't have any more stories about Lazarus the superhero. Lazarus doing incredible things. No, I mean, he was blessed, right? He got to come back from the dead. That's pretty sweet. His family was blessed. They, they got to have Lazarus back until they didn't. Because every death is final. Every separation is unbreakable. That black hole... Is inevitable. So those resurrections simply postponed the inevitable because they were children of Adam. They were trapped in the in the dark inheritance that they had received from their first father. That inheritance of death, and because they not only received that inheritance but also uh, participated in it, um, death was was theirs. It, it eventually swallows everyone. Um, Jesus. Huh. See, Jesus, when he rose from the dead, it was not not a temporary postponement of an inevitable end. It wasn't a small victory that would eventually pass. It wasn't a one-off miracle. It was a victory like no other victory in history. Jesus was swallowed by the black hole of death. But he was no victim. He was a hero. He was swallowed by the darkness, and then he went to war with the darkness. And he killed death. Now, what's interesting is that he didn't do it by force, right? Jesus didn't, didn't ride into the black hole of death with a thousand, you know, angelic warriors behind him on his white horse with his flaming sword. I mean, I love that image. That's pretty cool. He didn't, he didn't defeat death by an exertion of power. Right, there was a picture floating around on social media which would have been hilarious had it, people not been sharing it with sincerity. It was a picture of Jesus arm-wrestling Satan. I actually think it came from Russian bots. Um, I, for real, I think it, it actually did. But, but that picture is stupid on so many levels I can't even explain it. Right? Jesus isn't arm-wrestling Satan. <laughs> Jesus doesn't win by an exertion of his power. Jesus won by an exertion of his love. It was love that defeated death. It it was the fact that that Jesus willingly took the place of the condemned, that He suffered the death we all deserved, even though He didn't, and that in love, as our substitute, death couldn't digest Him. And He killed death. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says, The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. Now, that's a whole other sermon we're going to get to in a few weeks, okay? But let me just touch on it in this way. The sting of death is sin. Jesus lived the perfect life. He was human as humans were created to be. He wasn't sinless because He was God. He was sinless because He was perfectly human. And in His perfect humanity, He submitted continually to His Father. He lived for His Father's glory. He fulfilled His Father's mission. He trusted fully in in, in the love of His Father. He worked diligently, not to prove Himself to God, but resting in the love of God. He was humanity as, as humanity was created to be. And in so doing, He perfectly fulfilled the law. And yet He died under the curse of the law. Even though he himself had not inherited our first father's broken nature, he was a a second human, the last Adam. He still died. He still entered death, the consequence of, of the first father's sin. But when death tried to swallow him, it couldn't hold him. He blew it up. When he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, death could not hold him. He conquered the power of death through love. The author of Hebrews describes Jesus in a, in a beautiful way um, when it's talking about how Jesus became a priest. Jesus was not in the Levitical line, so he wasn't, he wasn't a priest by birth. Uh, because in the Old Testament, only Levites could become priests. The author of Hebrews says he became a priest through the power of an indestructible life. I love that phrase. He had an indestructible life. And when he went into death as our conquering hero, in dying, he killed death. He paid the price of justice and undid the rebellion of Adam. And an undoing the rebellion of Adam and rising again. He rose again, the first fruits of a rich harvest. Unlike anyone else who had ever come back from the grave, he came back not as a temporary postponement of death, but as the victor over death. And because he rose, it guaranteed a sequence of events. It guaranteed a sequence of events. He rose so that we might be raised. See, this was the good news that I put before Bristney. This is the good news that, that, that Bristney received and embraced, that she could, she could have peace with God, and having peace with God could, could be forgiven and made new and have a hope that, that was transcendent to her current experience. She could start a new life with a new hope, with a new God, a new Savior, a new future. that the dead end of that, of that roundabout with no exit, man, the exit was blown open. She had a new path. She could travel. Because death is not the end. The black hole that awaits all of us has been defeated. Now in my dream, when I was thinking about that path up the hill, What was interesting is just the the impending sense that I had of of not doom, but blessing. Like like, (laughs) this path goes up the hill and it just goes from glory to glory to glory to glory. From blessing to blessing to blessing, which is exactly how Paul describes the sequence of events that unfold from the resurrection of Christ. Because Christ, our first fruit, is raised from the dead, we too shall be raised, right? Right? And not only that, we will be raised, but we will be raised into the very kingdom of God, the recreation of human society. And that kingdom will be a a kingdom of righteousness and the flourishing of life. You will be raised culture will be raised. The kingdom of God will rise. And then Jesus, the last Adam, will sit on the throne, exercising authority for the flourishing of life. And then he will lay that kingdom before his father as an act of worship, yielding all of his authority to his father, reigning under the authority of his father, doing the very thing the first Adam refused to do. Listen, Christ was raised, and because Christ was raised, it changes everything. It changes everything. The dead end is no longer a dead end. It's now a road to glory. I want to focus on one one final word, um, and that's the word destroyed that we see in verse 24 and verse 26. Take a look in verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, every power. All right, so let me make it clear. We're talking here about a specific kind of rule and authority and power being destroyed because God the king will have power and authority, right? I mean, it only makes sense that the one who reigns will reign with authority and with power. God will still have power and authority. What he's talking about here is the destruction of the abuse of power. He's talking about destroying the systems of exploitation. He's talking about destroying the systems that are built on the abuse of power that cause some people to find the flourishing of life at the expense of others. It is talking about the, the abuse of people like Brisney, who are exposed and in pain because people around her don't see her as being infinitely valuable. They see her as a resource to be exploited for personal gain. He will destroy every rule, every authority, and every power. That is ridiculously good news. That the kingdom of God will destroy the abuse of power. Verse 26 the last enemy to be destroyed is death. (laughs) It's already been conquered, but there will come a point at which it is destroyed. Now, here's what caught me as I was studying this this week. I was doing the linguistic study of the Greek behind the text. The word destroy here makes a lot of sense to me. I love that idea, man. Come in and just blow that stuff up, right? Jesus, come and with your white horse and your flaming sword and your legion of angels. Man, just lay them low, right? Strike the proud, the abusers, the haters, the, the, the ones that are, that are, man, just the word for destroy here. Ghetto is a Greek word that doesn't mean military destruction. It's a word that means to nullify, to make void. In other words, to make something um, obsolete. The word here doesn't describe Jesus going to war. In the same way, Jesus defeated death, not by an exertion of his strength. There is a sense in which the coming of the kingdom of God will nullify the abuse of power, every rule, every authority, every power of this age, not through the exertion of strength, but by the sheer presence of its character. The image I have is, is Lauren has these candles at home, the jars, you know, you light them up, and, and, and I love putting them out, right? You just put the lid on it, and you get to watch, and, you know, it kind of fills up with smoke, and, and the candle eats up all the oxygen and destroys itself. Am I the only one? Is this, y'all don't even know what I'm talking about? Like, it's just kind of a cool thing, right? You just put the lid on it, and you're like, oh, it's dead, right? Um, but that, that word, I think, that image captures the power of this word. The coming of the kingdom of Christ somehow robs the oxygen from the systems that abuse power. So the question is, is how? How does the coming kingdom of God so change the environment that the systems that are built on the exploitation and the abuse of power are simply nullified, made irrelevant? They simply can't survive. Well, let me tell you what I think. Death. Death is the not only crowning experience, but the driving power of the kingdom of Adam. Right? Kingdom of Adam, is the hallmark is, is death. Right? So think about it. In this kingdom, this age, what are the most powerful nations? The ones that create the most beauty? The ones that are the most generous? Or the ones that can kill the most people? We know the nations that are the most powerful, the ones that have the most authority, the ones that can exert their will on the rest of the world, the ones that can can create space for their people are the ones that can exert the greatest damage against others. The greatest defense is a good offense. Power comes through the exertion of death. Now, what's interesting is that death Biblically, death is not cessation of being, right? Biblically, that's a a pagan idea, this idea that when you die, you simply cease to exist. It's it's not biblical. Um, Biblically, we were created in the image of God, which means the moment that you are born, you are an eternal being. You were created in the image of an eternal God. You don't don't cease to be. Spiritual death. Jesus, uh, God told Adam and Eve, in the day you eat of the fruit of the garden, you will surely die. The aid of the fruit of the garden. Right? They didn't physically die. Was God surprised? Oops, got that wrong. It's going to take a little while. No, because death isn't ceasing to exist. Death is separation. In the moment they ate from the tree, they were separated from the presence of God, the source of life. God, They could no longer lean into God, rest on God, be renewed in God, find their joy in God, find their security in God. God was now competing with them because they were competing with God. They were separated from God. God was a hostile force to them. His holiness now was threatening to their very nature. His glory was like a consuming fire in which they could be consumed if they got too close. Death is separation. And when we physically die, we don't cease to exist. We are physically separated. Our spirits are physically separated from our bodies. We don't cease to exist the power of death is separation. That's why there's so much glory in the teaching of the resurrection. We were created to be holistic human beings. We were never created to become spiritual angelic creatures. That would be a a distortion of the creative intent of God. There will be a physical resurrection because you were created to be human. I was created to be human. And we will be gloriously human as we were intended to be. But the power of death is separation. Think about the power exerted in our culture, the driving force of this world. The power of this world is death, and we use it as a tool. We use it as a weapon. We use separation to protect the impulse, right? What's the central impulse of the age of death? Since we can no longer rely on God and we have to compete with God, the central impulse is to keep what I have and get more. That describes your whole life. Keep what I have and get more, right? We laugh at the bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys wins. And we're like, oh, oh, big dummy, who cares if you die with another ATV? But isn't that exactly what we're all doing? Some of us are trying to accumulate more toys, more ATVs, more cars, more lake houses, more vacations. Some of us, the toys for us aren't aren't the the things we accumulate. Maybe for us, it's fame and influence. I need to keep what I have and get more. Maybe for some of us, it's love and affection. I need to keep what I have and get more. Maybe for some of us, it's security. I need to have a huge 401k account because that's how I'm going to be secure. I'm going to keep what I have and I'm going to get more. I don't know what it is that you're using to try to compete with God, but I guarantee you there is something you are trying to keep and get more of. And so what do we do? We build walls of separation. And we learn to compare our worth to others. I need to keep what I have, and I need to get more. So I build walls to keep what I have and keep you out and expand those walls even if it comes at your expense because I'm worth more when I have more. I'm worth more when, when people see me as more worthwhile. I'm worth more when I have more glory. I'm worth more when I have more affection. I am worth more when I have more money. I am worth more. I'm more secure, more important, more significant, more loved when I have more and you have less. And I may not have as much as him, but I got more than him. power of death is separation and it is the driving force of the age of Adam where we build walls to protect what we have and we fight battles to get more. Listen to me, the power of the kingdom of Christ nullifies the power of death. It robs the oxygen from the flame of greed It robs the oxygen from the flame of the abuse of power that we justify in the name of self-protection or self-privilege or self-pleasure because the kingdom of God runs on an entirely different economy. It has a different driving force. What is the economy of the kingdom of God? It's love. Love is the driving force of the kingdom of God. And what does love do? For God so loved the world that He gave. Love gives. Love honors. Love provides. Love sacrifices. The heart of love is generosity, not greed. It is the giving, and in the giving we are enriched. Listen, when the true king reigns, your worth will not be measured by how much you keep. When the true king reigns, you will not be more valuable because you have a better title or a bigger kingdom or more toys or more glory or more money. When the true king reigns, Your goal will not be to keep and gain. Your goal will be to love and be loved. And in loving and being loved, you will be enriched with the true riches of the human life. Genuine security, genuine joy, genuine purpose, and genuine significance instead of building walls that isolate you, that, that the more you get of whatever it is it's craving and it is robbing you of the true riches of life, you will be enriched and you will actually believe the words of Jesus when he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Like you'll actually believe it. I am more blessed when I give than when I receive. I'm richer. I'm better off. The driving force of the kingdom of God robs the oxygen from the kingdom of death. It can't survive. Think about it. If somebody comes up and threatens me with death, but I'm a child of the resurrected Savior, (laughs) what are you going to do? Knock me into the black hole where Jesus is going to pull me back out? Is there any fear of death when you are an eternal being covered in the resurrection power of Christ? Are you any less significant of somebody who has money or wealth or power in this world when the very streets on which you walk are paved in gold? The stuff we look to today to measure worth and establish power is going to be so common, we're going to walk on. The inverted power of the kingdom of God will completely rob the oxygen of the kingdom of death and it will not be able to survive. Like a candle robbed of its oxygen, it will simply cease to be. There will not be a glorious battle because there's not going to be any battle necessary. Jesus already won the battle. All that's going to happen is an establishment of the victory that's already been won. And in that establishment, death will not end with a bang. It will end with a whimper. we will receive the benefit. We will live in the outpouring of that generosity forever. Jesus has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of all that have fallen asleep in Christ. Because He has been raised, we will be raised. And because He has been raised, the kingdom of God will rise. And when it rises we will flourish in that glorious light. That's what's up the hill. That's what's been blown open to us. That is what we look forward to. Life upon life, glory upon glory. And I'm going to get to share that with Bristol. And I'm going to get to share it with you. Isn't that good news? I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. Take a little bit of time to reflect, and then we're going to share communion. And in sharing communion, we get to celebrate the one who died and rose again, the first fruits. And we pray for us. Father, I thank you that you are the God who loves and in being the God who loves you are the God who gives you gave your son and with your son you gave us all things may I, I, I just celebrate and give you thanks this morning for brisney and I pray for her as I have been praying, that you will surround her with protection, that you will provide for her needs, that you will, you will silence her abusers, that there will be a community that rises up around her that helps her discover and flourish in life in the midst of this age of darkness and death. And I pray that you will grow her hope in your presence and in your glory, increasing her appetite for the kingdom to come. And I pray for us too, often trapped and blinded by our affluence, numbed by our distractions and our entertainments. Man, our hearts grow cold to the beautiful reality of who you are and what you've done. Will you wake us up again that we might be filled with a fresh joy, excited with an overwhelming love, And I pray for my friends here this morning. If there are those who haven't trusted in Christ, those who are far from you, those who are still leaning into and trusting their own self salvation projects, Spirit, would you awaken them to the foolishness of those pursuits and to the beauty of the offer that is being given to them in Christ? That they might trust, that they might be covered. With the resurrection blessing of Christ, our first fruits. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.